This episode of Breaking Walls is sponsored by... Are you a maker, doer, dreamer who enjoys their time alone? Who thrives on working solo? Then you might enjoy the Creative Introvert Podcast. Every week, I bring you musings, tips, and guest interviews in order to inspire and motivate my fellow creative innings. Find the show at thecreativeintrovert.com. Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... What's up, guys? My name is James Scully. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 60. This month's Breaking Walls topic is a dual topic. It's independence and it's revolution. These two topics are in honor of the United States' Revolution of 1776 and the French Revolution of 1789. The other thing about this month is that it's July. Now, in the Northern Hemisphere, July is a summer month. If you ever lived in the Northern Hemisphere in July, you know temperatures rise, and if you live on the eastern seaboard of the United States, it's common to have a midday thunderstorm that, even for a brief period, breaks the humidity. The truth is, you can sense that thunderstorm coming, right? The humidity suddenly cuts, the skies darken, swirling winds come around, bringing an odd chill to the air that almost feels like October. If you're outside, you better go indoors because a torrential downpour is coming. Now, perhaps, this brief break from the surrounding humidity is true of all revolutions. Perhaps the violence a revolution brings offers only a brief respite from the turbulence and the hard, conscious work that it takes to balance life on this earth. Eventually, the fighting needs to stop, right? So what do we do then? Well, I think we fight because we love, but it's damn hard to love when ego gets in the way. Now maybe it's not a coincidence that these two famous 18th century revolutions officially touched off in July. Tensions were definitely brewing in both countries for decades prior, but why specifically was it in July that the bubble finally burst? Today on Breaking Walls, in honor of the 241st anniversary of the signing of the United States' Declaration of Independence, I'm presenting to you selected audio from the history of radio on the air during the 4th of July. Before I go on, I just want to say that if this is the first time you're listening to Breaking Walls and would like to subscribe, please do so on iTunes by searching for Breaking Walls or by following us on SoundCloud at The Wallbreakers. To check out our line of New York City Unity t-shirts, please go to jamesthewallbreaker.com shop or thewallbreakers.com shop. These are typographic t-shirts that use the slang names of the five boroughs of New York City to help show unity amongst all New Yorkers near and far. You don't have to be a New Yorker, by the way, to want to show your unity. Because for those that do understand what it's like, no explanation is necessary. And for those that do not understand why unity is very necessary, no explanation will ever be possible. And by the way, we, the Wallbreakers, we're on all social media outlets at the Wallbreakers, and we're on the web at thewallbreakers.com. Ordinarily, I only try to interject my own opinion when necessary on these broadcasts. 
It's a conscious effort. I want to make sure that I'm being a conduit and not a preacher. I work really hard on these episodes. And the last thing that I want to do is undercut my own hard work by turning you, the potential listener, off. But as I'm standing here today, I'm thinking that the truth is we're all preachers. Because the good word is inside of us. That good word is love. No matter what religion, or if no religions, we subscribe to, that's a true statement. I mentioned earlier on the open that we fight because we love. But that's true too. Have you ever fought with anybody you didn't care about? Even, I think, what we define as hate comes from an emotional connection of some sort. And so, as I open this broadcast, I'm thinking a lot about the state of the world and the state of my country. We're at a crossroads here. I don't think I'm undercovering anything that's groundbreaking as far as information goes when I say that. But let's stop for a second and forget that Donald Trump is the President of the United States. There has been a continued, decided rift between my fellow citizens of the United States and the citizens of the countries all over the world for much longer than Donald Trump's presidency. Flash back to that 2016 election cycle. There was that rift on both the Democratic and the Republican primaries. Go back further to Obama's two terms as president in 2008 and 12. That rift was there as well. Maybe the rift began on the morning of September 11, 2001. I was in Manhattan that day at Xavier High School on 16th Street, sitting in my second period sophomore English class when the news of the event first unfolded. But thinking about 9-11, it's also making me think about something else. In the next 15 years, all of the remaining World War II veterans will pass away. Isn't that crazy? These people that we grew up with idolizing for the heroic nature of what they did putting their life on the line. That band of brothers and sisters that brought our world out of the Great Depression and into the nuclear age will go where all those have gone before, into the ether. How should we honor what they fought for? How should we honor what their parents fought for during the First World War? So what are we going to do about this rift? We're all responsible here. I think, once again, it goes back to that simple four-letter word, love. Love does indeed trump hate. I think, though, in order for it to do so, we have to open up our hearts, which allows serendipity in, and then we grow from it. And also, remembering how important our friends and family are creates a stronger personal community that allows us to have independence and revolution from the only thing to ever have independence and revolution from, and that's fear. That operator? All right, wait a minute now. Here's the 20 cents. Hello, Pa? This is Eddie. I'm at camp. I say I'm at the camp. Yeah. I've been waiting in line two hours to make this call, Pa. Huh? I'm fine, Pa. How are you? Am I okay and Beanie? Ah, that's good. Look, Pa, listen. Here's why I'm calling. I'm going to be home over the 4th. Yeah. Two-day pass. No, 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 no. By train. I'll get in around dinner time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, Pa, a lot of guys are waiting to make calls, so I better hang up. Uh-huh. Okay, I see you Monday night. Bye. Columbia presents Corwin. 
This is an episode of Columbia Presents Corwin, originally broadcast on CBS, Tuesday, July 4th, 1944 at 10 p.m. That day, the Soviets scored two major victories against Germany in both the Minsk and Polotsk offensive campaigns, while Finland began the Battle of Vusalmi against Germany in northwestern Russia. At the same time, the 3rd Canadian Infantry Division began Operation Windsor, and by the end of that day, their troops had taken Carpiquet in Normandy. This broadcast aired less than a month after D-Day. It's a poignant piece written by Norman Corwin, and it definitely reflected the exhaustion of a nation that had been at war for almost three years. By Bernard Herman. Dane Clark in Norman Corwin's Home for the Poor. I had to wait in line two hours for my ticket. One way? Oh, round trip. Uh, 1423. And then when I got on the train, it was crowded. Do you mind if I sit here? No, not at all. Here, let me help you with that suitcase. Thank you very much. And at the second station, a lot more people got on, and they had to stand in the aisles. One of them was a pregnant woman, and nobody seemed to be offering her a seat, so I got up and gave it to her, and I stood in the vestibule. A corporal from Camp Wood was standing there, and we fell to talking. What camp is from? Manny. I should be glad to get home, huh? Oh, I'll say. I've been gone eight months. You married? No, but I'll sure be glad to see my girl again. How about you? I've been married two years. Yeah? Yeah, two years next August. Well, I thought about getting married, but I don't know. Getting married is pretty serious. You the only son in your family? No, I got a brother, Jim, in the Air Force overseas and a kid sister. Why? Well, sometimes it makes a difference. Your brother in the invasion? Oh, he's a meteorologist with the ground forces based in England. Uh-huh. Is there a diner on this train? Oh, I don't think so. I'm getting hungry. Me too, but I'm going to wait till I get home. I'll be home just in time for dinner. I think I could eat a small-sized horse. What I didn't tell him, because he looked so doggone hungry, was that my mother makes the best southern fried chicken in the world. He went to look for some chow, and I just stood there, biding my time, listening to the wheels... Gets to be a kind of a music after a while. Norman Corwin was born in Boston on May 3rd, 1910. At 19, he became a journalist, joining the Springfield Republican, and in 1932, he began broadcasting after the newspaper formed an alliance with WBZ Springfield and WBZA Boston. By 1938, he was at WQXR in New York, and in April of 1938, he was hired by CBS. Corwin honed his craft for three years until 1941, when he was given the task of writing scripts for the Columbia Workshop for 26 consecutive weeks. These plays have come to be known as 26 by Corwin. They've ranged from everything, from whimsy to romance to high drama to coming-of-age tales, and the series culminated on November 9, 1941, with a play entitled Psalm for a Dark Year. It was an observance of Thanksgiving at that time in a troubled world. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. 
A month later, Pearl Harbor was attacked, as well as Manila. That evening, Corwin began a long-running partnership with Orson Welles in a play entitled Between Americans. And now, Oscar Bradley's music introduces Orson Welles, who will talk Between Americans. This program is Between Americans. That's where the title comes in. We hope you like it, but you don't have to. At any rate, nobody's going to make you stick around and listen to it. That's one of the advantages of being an American. Now, tonight we're doing something quite foreign to the type of thing usually presented by the Gulf Screen Guild Theater. Instead of telling a story about five or six people, we're telling a story about a hundred million. This happens to include you, listener, whatever your name may be. As a matter of fact, names don't bother real Americans very much. Not when we've got states named after French kings and English queens are lifted right out of the Latin language like Montana or out of the Spanish like Nevada and towns. You know, if you were to hold a convention of all the people who live in foreign-sounding American towns, we could fill quite a sizable stadium. For a longer look at Between Americans and the nation after the Pearl Harbor attack, please check out Breaking Walls episode number 47, which was created in honor of the 75th anniversary of these bombings and originally aired December 7, 2016. The following week, at the behest of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, Corwin was given the job of writing a 60-minute play in honor of the 150th anniversary of the Bill of Rights. We hold these truths. This is a program about the making of a promise and the keeping of a promise. This is a program about the rights of people. This is a program coming to you over the combined radio networks of the United States, bringing you the voices of Americans, bringing you the voice of the President of the United States. This is a program for listeners in all zones of continental time. For listeners on ships away from home. For listeners in uniform. For listeners on the American islands in the two great oceans. This is a program about the guarantee made to the people of America 150 years ago. A guarantee that has been kept through peace and war and peace and war. I guarantee we call the Bill of Rights. We Hold These Truths was broadcast simultaneously on all four major radio stations. That, at that point in time was the NBC Red and Blue Network, CBS, and the Mutual Broadcasting System. 60 million people tuned in. At that point in time, it was the largest rating share of any program in the history of broadcasting. In March of 1944, Corwin was given his own show entitled Columbia Presents Corwin for a 22-week run. The show was not offered, by the way, by CBS to any sponsors. It was considered the crown jewel in the CBS lineup, and the network purposely broadcast it for free. Well, no wonder you're not hungry, please. Oh. Eating cookies all afternoon. Mommy, 
made the cookies specially for Eddie, and I had to take them to see if they were good. Didn't mm-hmm. I see you I'm only human? No, that's, that's open to some debate. I, <laughs> I don't think humans sit that way at meals. No. Orangutans, maybe, but not humans. What's orangutan? A sergeant. Uh, oh, Eddie. <laughs> incidentally, Eddie, I, I met Bill Gargan today. Oh, how is Bill? Oh, he's fine. Lieutenant. Got ten days furlough before going overseas. Says he might drop in to dinner. Good, I'd like to see him. Hmm, when are you going to see Rita? Well, she doesn't get off work till 8, and then she's coming over. Oh. Aren't you marry Rita, Eddie? I would if I were. Ma, would you sit down? I'll bring in the coffee. No, sir, no, you stay where you are. Good idea. Home for a day and a half, and he wants to wait on the table. Right. I hope you, Ma. That's a good girl, Benny. Oh, I do it all the time. Come a cigar, Eddie? No, thanks. I'll smoke my pipe. Uh, how many of these things do you smoke a day? No, about seven or eight. Mm, that's too many. You don't like to see you smoke so much. Yes, Father. Okay, son. See that you cut down. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, how do you think things are going in the invasion, Ed? Oh, I think they're going fine now. This new offensive that started in the West with the taking of Minsk and our, our secured beachhead. Sure, but I, I don't see how it can last. Oh, great great work, Ed. Great work. They're certainly doing a grand job. There's a sergeant in my company who's had some people come back overseas. Did you hear from Mr. McCausland? No, I'm expecting a wire from him tonight. Careful, dear. You stay the cream, Well, why'd you phone so far, Ma? Say, Pa, what did Jim say in his letter? Oh, it's a fine letter. Show it to you after dinner. Gee, it's a swell letter. Jim sent home a picture of him standing with a British girl in uniform. Uh, I'm glad your brother Jim isn't in the fighting in Normandy. Mm, I'll bet he's not glad. Well, he's doing his part. They need good meteorologists at the bases in England. Two or three? Thousands of them. No, I mean how many lumps of sugar? One. Say, take a look at the little finger, will you? Very fancy. Where did you learn to drink tea like that, Jeannie? The movie? Lady <laughs> to Havlin drinks tea like that? The oh, that's the probably your telegram. No, I think it's Rita for me. Well, maybe it's Olivia to Havlin for me. No, it's probably for me. It's probably for me. Wait a minute. Hello? Yeah, this is me. Hey, for me. Yeah. You know me, Paul? Sally, do I know Sally? This is good for three taps for nice. Beanie, please limit your call to five hours. Now, you used to be just as bad on the phone with Rita. Yes, but Rita didn't live next door. <laughs> More coffee, Edward? No, no, thanks, Mom. You, Dad? Yes, thanks. All right. Hey, get a load of that edifying phone conversation, will you? That's all of it. Listen. She's lying for me, Bologna, for cheese, and you can tell I said so, too. Well, she was Miss Keeley's pet all last year. She used to bring her apples. Yeah, and one day she brought her a One of the things that immediately struck me about the dialogue in this dinner scene was just how normal it sounds. I don't know. Maybe it's because we look at the past in a way that's always somewhat slightly rose-tinted or nostalgic, but couldn't some form of this conversation be had at the dinner table in your family? Hasn't it been had? at your house at one time? This play was broadcast 73 years ago, but it could have been recorded in an American home 73 minutes ago. That seems incredibly important to me. Six years long. Edward, if you want to get married, then I say... Oh, that's probably Reed at the door. Well, maybe my telegram. No, no, I'll go. Hello, you. Rita. You're looking well, Edward. So are you. Ask me in, darling. Oh, come here. You're full of lipstick. It's all right. Mark of honor. Here's my handkerchief. All off? Yes. Let's go inside. 
while. Ma made Rita have some dessert and coffee. Beanie was still on the telephone, of course, until Pa made her hang up because he was expecting a wire from somebody. And then the folks... You know how they are. They figured Rita and me hadn't seen each other for a while, so they sent Beanie to bed and then announced they hadn't been out in the air all day and they simply had to go for a walk. So Rita and I went in the living room and I turned on the radio. Bringing you the winner of the local high school Independence Day essay contest, Mr. Herbert Gates, Jr., reading his prize-winning paper entitled, What the Fourth of July Means to Me. Mr. Gates. Tomorrow is the 4th of July. It is our National Day of Independence and is celebrated wherever Americans are or whatever they are doing. July 4th, 1944 or July 4th, 1776. The American people have always celebrated this day and that will give you some idea of how important it is. Get something else. What good American is not thrilled at the sight You missed the radio at camp. Uh, I don't get a chance to hear it much either with my job the way it is. I suppose. Did you by any chance hear the lonesome train a couple of months ago? No. What's that? New song by, about Lincoln. No, I didn't hear it. It was pretty good. Too bad you missed it. Yeah. Did you miss me? What do you think? What do I think? I think that you're more wonderful than I imagined. Imagined? Yes. Yeah. You want to know something? I used to think about you. I used to imagine you every day. Every night. I, I, I'd take your picture out when I was alone. I'd look at it. I didn't put it up on the wall because I almost didn't want to share it with anybody. I... Oh. I love you, Rita. mad to be with me as, as I am to see you. <laughs> yes, Miss And you still want to marry me? Yes. Then why don't we get married before you go overseas? Well, it's like I said before. What did you say before? Well, now supposing I go in and get shot up, so you've got an invalid husband on your hand. Suppose I'm killed and, and you're a widow. All right, suppose I'm lost or something. I'm reported missing. Ed, that's silly. You, you know I love you enough to face up to anything that might happen. Darling, is it that you're afraid to marry me? Is it that you're not sure you love me? Don't be afraid to tell me if that's how you feel. No, no, that's silly. I do love you. Only... Well, it's only that I'm... I'm kind of hipped on this subject, I guess. I've I just got the kind of a conscience that simply won't let me... Oh, no, don't look like that, darling. I... Uh, I'm all right. Sweetheart, let's not talk about it, huh? Let's just be glad to be together. It's so long since I've seen you. Yes. Yes, of course.
Let's step away from our timeless American family for a moment. While 4th of July can be bittersweet, it can also be a fun celebration filled with family food and fireworks. None of it would be possible, however, if the 13 colonies of America didn't declare war upon their British overlords in 1776. Fed up with the everyday grind? Tired out from the summer heat? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape. Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. You are spurring a lathered horse through darkened streets, trapped by two hostile armies with a kit of magic in your pocket, and the American Revolution in the balance. Tonight, we escape to an earlier day and to the workshop of a famous wizard, as Stephen Vincent Benet told it in his delightful story, A Tooth for Paul Revere. Some say it all happened because of Hancock and Adams, and some put it back to the Stamp Act from before. Then there's some that hold out for Paul Revere and his little silver box. But the way I heard it, the American Revolution broke out because of Lige Butterwick and his tooth. My great-aunt was a Butterwick, and I heard it from her. Every now and then, she'd write it out and want to get it put in the history books, but they'd always put her off with some trifling sort of excuse. But the way she told it to us kids, sitting there before the flickering fire on some blustery, blowy night, it sounded spooky enough and wonderful enough to be as true as the Union. History books, bah. You don't get the right of things from such. In the story of a nation, it's the queer corners that count. The tales that get whispered down through families. Now take Paul Revere, for instance. All most folks think about is his riding a horse. But he was a silversmith by trade. And there was a kind of magic in that hand of his. I could see just a little bit farther into the millstone than most folks. And in that little shop of his on those fateful nights, he sat over a miraculous flame and brewed the revolution in a silver teapot. And then he put it into a little silver box. No bigger than this. Yes, that's the way my great-aunt talked about Paul Revere. The chills ran up our spines. This episode of CBS's Escape was broadcast over the air on July 4th, 1948. Today, Escape is considered to be one of the golden age of radio's greatest series of high adventure. But in its day, it was mostly an unsponsored, sustained time filler that was shifted to at least 18 different time slots during its seven-year run. This lack of sponsorship, like I said known on radio as a sustained program, allowed for more experimental audio and pushed the medium of radio forward. <laughs> William? Yes, sir? <laughs> Put up the shutters. We are closing for the day. Uh, oh, William, no word yet from Dr. Warren? Not yet, sir. <clears throat> yeah, what's that? Well, who are you there in the corner? Well, Mr. Vare. It is Mr. Vare, isn't it? Yes, yes, of course. Uh, it's a kind of a long story, but uh, closing or not, you got to listen to me. 
The barber told me so. The barber? You see, I'm Lige Butterwick, and it's my tooth. Yeah, I'll... I'll tooth? <laughs> you'd, you'd better begin at the beginning. Oh, but wait now. Here, you don't talk like a Boston man. Where'd you come from? Oh, around Lexington Way. And you Lexington? See, you there this morning? Well, of course I was. That's where the barber... I Never mind about that barber. Were Miss Hancock and Mr. Adams still at Parson Clark's? Well, uh, there might have been, for all I know. But I couldn't say. Great heaven, is there a man in the American colonies who don't know Mr. Hancock and Mr. Adams? Oh, well, there seems to be me. But uh, speaking of strangers, uh, there was two of them staying at the parsonage when I rode past. One was a handsome man. The other man uh, looked more like a bulldog. So they are still there. And the British ready to march. Did you see many soldiers as you came to my shop, Mr. Butterwick? See them. They chased me into a tar barrel. It was a whole parcel of them by the common with guns and flags. Looked as if they meant business. Thank you, Mr. Butterwick. You're a shrewd observer. You've done me and the colonies an invaluable service. Well, that's nice to know. But uh, speaking of this, too... <laughs> You're a stubborn man, Mr. Butterwick. All the better. I like stubborn men. I wish we had more of them. Well, one good turn serves another. You've helped me. I'll do my best for you. I've made artificial teeth, but drawing them is hardly my trade. All the same, let's have a look. Here, come over here by the light. Aye. And now, open. Ah, yeah. Well, Mr. Motherwick, it appears to be compound agglutinated infection of the upper molar. Oh. And I'm afraid I can't do anything about it tonight. But, but, but uh, here's a draft that will ease the pain for a while. There. Drink. <clears throat> it's, um, it's spicy and, uh, and queer. <laughs> Never mind. Now, you go to a tavern, get a night's rest. Come back see me in the morning. I'll find a truth drawer for you. If I'm here... Oh, yes, sir. You'd best have some liniment. Uh, it's a queer kind of shop you have here, Mr. Revere. <laughs> some folks think so. Say, uh, what's in that little bottle? Where? Oh, there. That's a little chemical experiment of mine. I call it Essence of Boston. But there's a good deal of the east wind. Essence of Boston? Well, they did say you was a wizard. It's... Genuine magic, I suppose. Genuine magic, of course. Two men carrying a trunk, and one of them was Paul Revere. Well, Mr. Revere, say I'm on time for that little appointment about my tooth. Well, um, <laughs> it's you. <laughs> you are a stubborn man, Mr. Budwick. Ah, well, but uh, you give me a merry chase all night. I've had one myself. Been captured by the British once and escaped. Don't know what's still in store for me, but we're carrying a precious cargo here in this trunk. 
We'll bring into safety all the private papers of Mr. Hancock and Mr. Adams. Uh, which reminds me, I've uh, something for you here. What? Silver box. We've got the silver box. I, by mistake, and it's getting frightfully hot in my hand. Yes, my friend, and little wonder. Across there, Lexington Green. The Green? Why, there's a line of Lexington men. And there across the creek, facing them, there's a column of British redcoats. Aye, lined up with guns, they are, Mr. Butterwick. They've come to arrest Mr. Hancock and Mr. Adams, and the Minutemen stand before them. Mr. Vare, I'm a peaceable man. I've had little notion of politics. But I don't like what I saw in Boston. I don't like soldiers chasing peaceable citizens into tar barrels or uppity ladies with imported British manners. And I don't like British redcoats on Lexington Green. That I don't. Mr. Bedwick, what are you doing? I'm stamping on your silver box, Mr. Revere. I'm breaking it open. You know what you've done. You've let out the American Revolution. Look, they've fired the first shots. Well, I guess it's about time. And I guess I'd better be going now. Uh, but, Mr. Bedwick, where are you going? Home. Got a musket on the wall there. I'll be needing it. Uh, but here, what about your tooth? Oh, a tooth's just a tooth. But a country is a country. Anyhow, doesn't ache anymore. Shave Cream Sports Newsreel. Bill Stern, the Colgate Shave Command is on the air. Bill Stern, the Colgate Shave Command with stories rare. Take his advice and you'll look keen. You'll get a shave that's smooth and clean. You'll be a Colgate brushless fan. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Bill Stern broadcasting from the Windy City of Chicago. And from Chicago, bringing you the 396th edition of the Colgate Shave Cream Sports Newsreel. Our guest tonight is the famous star, George Jessel. But before we bring you George Jessel in person, here is Real One. Portrait of the 4th of July. Since today is the 4th of July, our whole program tonight is devoted to 4th of July stories. And even though our first story happened on a 4th of July many years ago, I think you'll find it interesting on this 4th of July. For it's a strange story with a curious ending. 150 years ago, the biggest racetrack outside of New York City was located in Long Island. It was just outside of New York. Here, the young men used to meet and place bets on horses. And here, it was that a young man named John first met another young man named Tom. These two, John and Tom, became friendly. And they discovered that they were rivals, for they were both in the same profession. All their profession had nothing to do with horse racing. In fact, their profession was politics. They both did well in politics, too. So well that both John and Tom made history. You see, John's full name was John Adams, and he became the second president of the United States while John's friend Tom was Thomas Jefferson, who became the third president of the United States. And so, history records that our second and third presidents of the United States, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, began their rivalry at a racetrack outside of New York City. But you know, 
Neither John Adams nor Thomas Jefferson is remembered only because they were President of the United States. Oh, no. These two are far better remembered as the author and co-author of America's Declaration of Independence, which was adopted on July the 4th of 1776. For you see, these two men, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, through helping write that Declaration of Independence and having it adopted on the 4th of July, helped to make the 4th of July a national holiday. Naturally, both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were extremely proud. The Declaration of Independence, which they had helped to write, should be celebrated each year on the 4th of July as a national holiday. And each year on that date, these two men who'd made that day famous would hold a little celebration all their own. For on each 4th of July, these two, even though by now they were rivals, would return to the racetrack outside of New York where they'd met. Here these two would celebrate that day that they had made famous. And each year on the 4th of July, in their honor, a special race was run. A race which was named the 4th of July Stakes in honor of the national holiday which these two men had made famous. As the years passed, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were not always such good friends. Their rivalry became even more bitter. But nevertheless, on each 4th of July, they'd always come back to their racetrack to watch the running of their 4th of July Stakes. On the 50th anniversary of their holiday, by the 4th of 1826, both of these men were expected back as usual at the track. But neither John Adams nor Thomas Jefferson arrived. They did not arrive on that 4th of July. For these two former presidents of the United States, who had made the 4th of July famous, had both died on that 4th of July, which was the 50th anniversary of the very date that they had made a national holiday. Shortly after that, the racetrack was closed. Then... Strangely enough, another president of the United States, President James Monroe, purchased the grounds. Not to continue the racetrack, but rather President Monroe bought this property to live on. And soon he built there a beautiful home. And there, on the site of this former racetrack, President James Monroe lived. It's strange, isn't it? That James Monroe, who bought this land, originally made famous by two former presidents who'd made the 4th of July a national holiday and died on that date, that James Monroe should die like they did. But he did. For he also died on another 4th of July. Portrait of a racetrack that was made famous by three presidents, all of whom died on the 4th of July. This episode of the Bill Stern Sports Newsreel was broadcast on NBC Friday, July 4th, 1947 at 10.30 p.m. Stern was also a sportscaster. His show was noted for being recorded on location wherever Stern happened to be calling a game that week. As Stern mentioned, this episode was recorded in Chicago, where earlier in the day Stern called the Chicago Cubs 5-4 victory over the rival St. Louis Cardinals at Wrigley Field. Stern, by the way, was also an Irish-American. For more information on his life and career, please check out Breaking Walls episode number 53, which was recorded in honor of St. Patrick's Day and released March 16th of 2017. Transcribed.
Curtains. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with the American Legion, presents a story out of that great composite of visions, struggles, and victories of the American past, our Inheritance. Inheritance was a show that came to the NBC airwaves late in the golden age of radio during the 1954 season. This show, broadcast on July 4th, 1954, tells the story of the creation of the Liberty Bell. The arrival of the Pilgrims at Plymouth Rock. It is Colonel Washington building Fort Necessity. And the voice of a great bell proclaiming liberty. Let us now go back to a significant chapter in America's history, one which we all share in our inheritance. This is the story of a bell, not the largest nor the heaviest, but one of the most famous. Of all the bells in the world, none has been associated with events of so great import to humanity. Its long and colorful history began in the year 1752 in the bell-casting foundry of Thomas Lester in London, England. Oh, I say now, I, I don't understand this at all. Eh? What's that, Whitcomb? This order from America, from the province of Pennsylvania, for a new bell, Mr. Lester. What about it? Well, I don't understand all of it. It should be quite simple. They want a bell measuring 12 feet in circumference, about 7 feet around at the crown, to weigh about 2,000 pounds. It's signed by Isaac Norris, chairman of the superintendent. Yes, sir, but the inscription they want. I see nothing difficult about that, Whitcomb. It reads very plainly. By order of the Assembly of the Province of Pennsylvania for the State House in the city of Philadelphia, 1752. Now, what don't you understand about that? It's not that part, sir. It's a quotation they asked for. The quotation? Yes, they want a verse from the Bible. See, right there. Uh, Leviticus, 10th verse, 25th chapter. Starting with the word proclaim. I see. And they didn't say what the rest is. No, sir. And I don't know my Bible well enough well, to... Well, that's easily remedied. Here, I'll look it up for you. Uh, um, Leviticus, 25th chapter, 10th verse. Now, here it is. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land... Unto all the inhabitants thereof. Proclaim liberty? <laughs> I don't understand it, Mr. Lester. Frankly, Whitcomb, I don't either. However, if the Pennsylvania Assembly wants the inscription on the bell... Yes, sir, I understand. They shall have it. That's right, Whitcomb. The great bell was cast that summer, and accompanied by its maker, Thomas Lester, started on the long ocean voyage to America... Too large to go in the hold, it was lashed to the main deck. When the ship ran into a storm and was severely mauled by heavy seas, several of the bell's lashing ropes broke. For a time, it appeared the bell might break loose completely and be lost overboard. Only with the greatest difficulty was it finally made secure. On September 1st, 1752, the bell was delivered in good order to the chairman of superintendents of the Pennsylvania Assembly, Isaac Norris. It appears a fine bell indeed, Mr. Lester. Uh, what about its tone? Well, frankly, Mr. Norris, it has not been rung yet. Did they not test it before it left London? Well, testing was not necessary. 
It was designed after Great Tom of Westminster. And no one can deny that bell's fine tone. I've not heard Great Tom, but I shall take thy word for it. It is only that when shipping something halfway around the world, it seems they should make certain everything is perfect. Oh, your fears are groundless, Mr. Norris. The bell is in perfect condition. By the way, how did the Pennsylvania Assembly happen to select the quotation, Proclaim Liberty Throughout the Land? It was my suggestion. It seemed appropriate. Appropriate? Yes. So many have come to America seeking freedom. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship. But Mr. Norris... Freedom and liberty are not quite the same. Aye, Mr. Lester. But someday, perhaps yes? someday, they may be quite the same here in America. We must have been sitting there on the sofa for about a half hour, and then we heard voices out on the porch. And we figured the folks must be back in their walk, so we went out and we joined them. They were talking with Bill Goggins, who had met them on their way up the street. Pa was deep in an argument with Bill. I know what I'm talking about, Bill. I fought in the last one. It was the same thing then. They said it was a war to end war and so on and so forth, but it wasn't anything of the kind. It's the same thing today, all over again. Well, I disagree with you, Mr. Eakin. It's an entirely different war. In in, in the first place... What's going on here? Well, hello, Eddie. Well, how are you? Fine, I'm glad. You don't read it, don't you? Yes, of course. How are you, dear? What are you doing? I'm working in a machine and tool factory now. Oh, Oh, good for you. Interrupt this dogfight. Carry on, gentlemen. Oh, well, we weren't arguing. It's just that Bill here seems to think it contains human nature. No. No, I don't believe that's an issue at all, Mr. Eakin. If, uh, if anything, uh, people's instincts are against war. Was it human nature that got Ed and me into uniforms? No, it was draft board number 17. <laughs> no, it, it wasn't human nature. It was a very inhuman, unnatural thing. Like what? It was fascism, Ed. That's right, Bill. Why, sure. After all, uh, peace and not war is so much a part of human nature that, well, most of us just refuse to believe that the fascists deliberately intended to make war... And we waited until it was almost too late. I still think we're going to have another war after this one. And so do I. Oh, Eddie, you don't. Sure I do. That's defeatist talk, if you ask me. Mr. Eakins, you mean you don't think anybody will have learned anything out of this war? No, I think it's exactly the same kind of war as the last one. Absolutely, I agree with my old man. Well, your old lady doesn't agree with your old man. I think we've made a lot of progress. Good for you. Such as what? Well, the Atlantic Charter and the... I bet you don't even know what they stand for. How much do you want to bet, hmm? Oh, never mind, never mind. When you talk that way, you probably know. (laughs) Well, what do they stand for? The Tehran Agreement called for the big three to continue cooperating after the war. I ought to know that when I lectured to the East Side Women's Club about it. It says that Britain, Russia, and we are planning for the day when all the people in the world can live free lives. Free from tyranny and... uh, well, if I remember the wording, uh, according to each one's varying desires and uh, his own conscience. Isn't that right, Mr. Eakin? Correct. Oh, that all sounds fine, but when I tell you it's idealistic, it's, it's visionary. Well, what do you think? Look, none of the boys, Bill, that I know in the Army go for that idealism stuff, at least not in my outfit. Well, they do in my outfit. Listen, Bill, I've talked with a lot of the boys, including some who've been overseas, and the one thing they want to know is when do they get home? Sure, just as in the last war. Even our letters from Jim are full of it. Oh, soldiers in every war have wanted to go home. Certainly, if you want an example of human nature, that's one, to want to go home. But there's a, there's a big difference in this war. 
Oh, you hear of men wanting to come home, sure, but you don't hear of any desertions on account of it, as you did in other wars. The American soldier knows he's got to win before he gets home, or else his home won't be worth coming back to. So what's that got to do with the Tehran Conference? What's that got to do with it? Yeah. Everything. What do you suppose our men are fighting for anyway? Oh, ideals, I suppose. Oh, chicken and every hot and hot pot. That's a fine idea for a young American. Look, we're fighting to get it over with, and that's all. Look, I don't begin to understand your attitude about idealism. You and your father seem to think that it's a little embarrassing to be found dead or alive with an ideal. Sure, sure, the Tehran Agreement's visionary. But so was our Declaration of Independence. Did you ever stop to think of that? Supposing they sat around at Philadelphia 150 years ago making cracks about long hairs and visionaries. But that's different. The Declaration of Independence involved one country in 1776 and a Tehran thing involved oh, a bunch of countries in another time. Of you. We were practically 13 separate countries back in 1776. Where's your history? Well, I know. I right. hear certain people speak about the ideology of this war as though it was something extra. Uh, something you could throw away, uh, dispense with, if the going gets tough. Well, I think it's a heck of a lot more important than C rations or K rations or sometimes even ammunition. It's the whole heart and soul of fighting. And I've talked to a lot of G.I.s, too, and in my experience, it's hardly ever the men who do the fighting who sneer at the reasons why they're fighting. Yes, and the ones who sneer are mostly high-priced columnists who spend the rest of their time kicking about the income tax they have to pay. Sure. The only time the war comes home to them is when they get bounced off a plane because they don't have a priority. Mm. Uh, what papers do you read, Bill? Yeah, the same papers you read, sir. And I don't have to read the editorials to form my opinion. Just the main headlines and the text of the speeches and the communiques. I've been doing that right along. So have I, ever since Spain. Well, with me ever since Spain, sure. You know. Well, that's all very well. And I still say the men are fighting to get back to where we were before the stinking war. That's all they're fighting for. And I think that's enough to fight for. We're not mad at anybody. Well, <laughs> look, Ed. Well, neither of us is on this lead to spend our time arguing. All I can say personally is that if I'm going to die in this war, I'd like it to be for an ideal. For something, something pretty awful special. And I think the promise of Terahan is, is that. I think the whole fact and the idea of the United Nations is something good and special. Now, wait a minute, Bill. Let's get back to where we were talking about, about the Declaration of Independence. Now, in the first We've place... We've never left it, Eddie. We've never left it, Tehran, the Charter, all these things, they're sort of the great-grandsons of stuff like the Declaration. Certainly. If a man writes a fine document 150 years ago, he's a hero, but he writes it today, he's a politician. Believe me, when I leave my family this trip, it'll be for the duration, maybe for a good deal longer. And if I'm not coming back, at least I want my people to have an insurance policy on my life. And the best policy I know about so far is the one the Allies wrote there at yeah, yeah, and there's a captain in my company who talks like you, too, but nobody pays any attention to him, either. Oh, Eddie, what a thing to say. I think you want to apologize to Bill. Oh, well, that's my... No, 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 no. That's all right, Rita. Well, look, I've got to be getting along anyway, and that's as good a place as any to leave the discussion. Oh, no, hold on, Bill. You no, were... no, don't you go, Bill. Please stay and have some tea with no, me. No, no, come no, on. really, really. I, 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 no, no, no. Come but... on, come on, Bill, and stay. We really love you, you know. Only... I know. Even though we, we don't agree with you. Sure, Bill, I will. No, 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 really, look, look, I must go. I, I'm late now. I told Ed and I'd drop around now, so... Well, good night, everybody, and I hope that before I go, we get a chance... Oh, George, look. Here comes the boy with your telegram from McCausland. Where? 
Why, he's right there crossing the street. Mm, it's about time he let me know. Nearly a whole day to labor that thing. George W. Eakins live here? Yeah. Telegram for you. So I see. I'm there. Okay. Here you are. Thanks. If Sid doesn't get me those reservations, I'm just going to... Look, it's all right. So what's he say? Personal question. What is it, Pa? What's the matter, George? Here, give it to me. The War Department regrets to inform you that your son, James Trish Egan's, is missing. He's a meteorologist. Well, how can he be missing? He's stationed in England. That, that can't be right. There must be a mistake here. Maybe it's the wrong... Jim. Jim. But it just says missing. Lots of guys who are missing later... I'm going inside. Excuse me, everybody. I'm going inside. Yeah, yeah. Let me help you, Mother. Yeah. I'm sorry, Eddie. Believe me, I'm sorry. Ed, he's... Oh, Jim's all right. He's missing, that's all. Lots of guys who are missing later turn up. Don't they, Bill? Don't they turn up later? Sure, Eddie. Lots of them. Sure. Jim isn't dead. I know that. You can't kill a guy like Jim. He'll turn up. Of course he will. Sure. Here. Can I see that? Thanks. Rita? Thanks. All right. I'm glad you're here with us right now, Bill. Can you stay for a little while? Yes, do stay, Bill. Of course. Bill, I... Come in the house. Come on in. I'll make something to do. And that's the thing about these discussions. Idealism versus realism. What is liberty? What is patriotism? What does it mean to be an American? Hell, even me speaking at this exact moment on this podcast is just waxing poetic. It's easy for me to sit here and say that I'm an idealist, or that war has an expiration date, or that we need to put aside all of our differences, find common ground, love each other. It's easy for someone to dispute that and say that they're a realist, that people will never change, that human nature in and of itself is chaotic and that we can't trust anybody we don't know. And then, you get a telegram, or a call, or a knock on your door, and you find out that your brother, your sister, your father, your son, your daughter, is missing in action, and everything changes instantly. This slice of life dialogue written by Norman Corwin in this play, it's timeless. And this particular scene, when written in July of 1944, less than one month after the Normandy invasion, three and a half years after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, hit home in many an American household. And these households, they were black, they were white, they were red, they were green, they were Christian, they were Jew, and they were all American. It's moving for me to sit here and listen to this piece, 
that tells you the success of this kind of writing 73 years later. And of course, we know now that many of the visionary ideals put forth at the Terran Conference haven't been fully realized. But does that mean we should stop trying? If it does, what does that then mean? I think that's a question only we can answer for ourselves, but the internet age has proved we live in a global world. The ideals put forth in the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the subsequent 17 amendments, they're not perfect, I know this. They're not supposed to be though. America isn't now, nor has it ever been perfect. These documents, our lives, our relationships can be progressive though. I just don't see how anything we do in life can be progressive if we let fear in our hearts instead of love. But if you disagree with me, that's also okay. Don't be angry with me. Let's talk about it. It's the only way we can ever find common ground and a mutual understanding. And it's also a good way to stay positive in the face of terror. were feeling better when I left the house the next day. It was the saddest Fourth of July we'd ever had. But the folks took it wonderfully well. After all, Jim is only missing. Many of the boys do show up after a while. Especially flyers who come down to enemy territory. I guess Jim must have changed his job from meteorologist to join a boxing club. And he never bothered to tell us. Or maybe he never was a meteorologist. Darling, your train leaves in five minutes, and you'd better stand at the gate if you want to get a seat. Just one more kiss? And make it last for three weeks. You'll come down to camp on the 30th now? Yes. I'll bring the license, too. Don't worry. Oh, yes, Mrs. Eaton. I love you. And I love you. Slow, crowded ride back to camp. I felt pretty blue. I had a smile once when a fellow on the train exploded a couple of paper bags in celebration of the 4th of July. He said it was Erzat's fireworks on account of it was a war. I kept thinking about Jim and Rita and about what Bill Gotham said. I decided I... I sort of liked Bill. The more I thought about him, he's really a decent kind of a fellow with a good head on his shoulders. He's like Jim in a way. 
Yeah. Like Jim. Listening to Home for the Fourth, written, directed, and produced by Norman Corwin for CBS as the 17th in his current series of broadcasts. Dane Clark, distinguished Warner Brothers star, appeared in the role of Ed Eakins. Wally Mayer was Lieutenant Bill Goggins. Betsy Kelly played Rita. Pa Eakins was played by Paul McVeigh. And Regina Wallace was heard as Ma. Joan Loring was Beanie, and the boy was Billy Roy. Bernard Herman composed and conducted the original musical score. I would be remiss, although this audio, to me, is very powerful, if I didn't end on a much more positive note. So I'm going to play a clip from Gene Shepard. Gene was an American radio and TV personality, as well as a writer and a storyteller. I think he's now most remembered for his novel, In God We Trust, All Others Must Pay Cash, and also as a narrator and writer of A Christmas Story, which is based on his own childhood. In 1964, Gene was at the famous Limelight Club in Greenwich Village, giving a performance on the 4th of July where the search for truth and beauty goes on endlessly. And in the innermost recesses of each one of them down here burns a clear golden flame of eternal truth. Right, gang? It's a village, all right. Egotistical. All right, we're down at the limelight at Sheridan Square, and we'll be here until midnight. And you know what night this is, friends? This is July 4th. And if you listen carefully, back in your mind, you can hear the cannonade. The thunderous applause and uproar of eternal youth and patriotism. And so tonight, since this is the 188th birthday of the United States, let us all sing the happy birthday song. Already, gang? All right, let's go. One, two, three. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear United States of America. Happy birthday to you. Good old United States of America. Happy birthday to you. Well, since it is, it is the birthday of the United States of America, I've been listening to the radio today, and I've been trying to figure out what, what they're doing about the 4th of July, and it's practically nothing. Nobody even says anything about it. Once in a while, they'll play uh, Guy Lombardo playing the Stars and Stripes Forever. <laughs> You know, that kind of thing. Or they'll say, uh, the Yankees won a doubleheader to celebrate the fourth. Well, I'm going to tell you a very funny thing about the Fourth of July. This is not a program tonight of nostalgia. It's a program, I suppose, based on the kind of nuttiness of which patriotism is composed. 
a kind of a patriotism is always somehow coupled with violence. How many times have you watched guys hold a cherry bomb in their hand? A red, white, and blue cherry bomb? They hold it out and they say, watch this. I'll let it go while I'm holding it. Boom! He's there. <laughs> He's celebrating the fourth. Oh, yes, this is a strange nuttiness. And when I was a kid, my father got into the fireworks business. Now, most of you, I'm sure, have watched the fireworks business from a distance, just like we watch the baseball business, show business. But let me tell you something about the inside of the fireworks racket. Every year, about three or four weeks before the 4th of July, the big shipment would arrive. He really was. He had a fireworks stand, and I, I, I had to work in the stand. Boy, did I hate it. The sun is coming down, and it's hot, and you're out by US 31, way out near Griffith, Indiana, someplace. 18 million cars are going past all the time, and the heat, and the, and, and the dust, and you, and you know, you had to make change all the time, and I could hardly count, and people were yelling, oh, you know, you know that rotten mess when you're about nine years old, and you got to work. They said, get out, you got to work, you got to go to the stand, and ooh, I got so I hated it. But about four weeks before the stand would open, which was two weeks exactly before the fourth, the shipment would arrive. And about ten gigantic cases of this stuff would be put in our basement. Can you imagine all the fireworks that are going to be fired off in the county are in your basement? And every night you're sleeping ten feet above them. And let me tell you something about the fireworks that they had those days. The fireworks were not these little red firecrackers or sparklers. Because there is a violence in the true fireworks celebrator that demands real things. And they used to have, I suppose you're aware that during the heyday of fireworks, there were status symbol fireworks. Oh yeah, I, seriously. That, that your status as a spender and as a celebrator was measured by the length of the bomb that you let go. And we used to have little ones that would start at about a dime a piece. And they were red, white, and blue, and they had a little green square piece of wood on the bottom. You remember them? Then there would be the quarter one. Then there would be the 50 cent one. Then there would be the buck one. And then there would be suicide. I'm serious. These giant ones, we'd have them back here up, up on the shelf. And they would be way up on the top shelf. You know, the way Tiffany must keep the real stuff hidden. And when a real mark comes in, they bring the thing out, you know, on the, on the velvet case. It's, of course, for a person like you, this is what you want. You know, they bring it out. Well, I'd be standing back there, and I'd see my old man who got to be a fantastic fireworks salesman. He could tell by the look in the eye whether this was a true nut coming in. And guys, no, guys used to prove their virility by firing off fireworks. There's a great symbolism there. We can go into the Freudian thing, but that's for after the show, gang. And, and, and I'd be standing down there, you know, and, and the sun is beating down, and all these cars would be lined up with the radiators boiling. They'd come out of town to buy the stuff. And I'm back at the counter. And these guys would get out of their car. The guy, there was a kind of guy, a sort of a big butter and egg man type. 
who bought fireworks. They'd be driving along with their Sunday afternoon cutie. Now oh, let's stop and get some of this stuff. Get out of here. What do you say? Let's have some fun. And they'd get out of their car and they'd come towards me. I'd be standing there behind the counter. My old man's down here with a bag of sparklers with a bunch of kids. And he'd come up. And he'd say, all right, kid, what do you got? I'd say, well, you got Mount Vesuvius here. <laughs> oh, by the way, do you know that there were names of fireworks like that? Mount Vesuvius. How many of you can tell me the name of the thing that when it was a little round, flat, red thing with paper on it, and you put it on the ground and scrunch. Do you remember that thing? For, for weeks after they'd use these things, you'd walk along and your, your, your tennis shoes would catch on fire. What the devil did it? It would get ground into the sidewalk. Do you remember that? Do you remember those things? What were the things? What were the things? Now, I'll give you a real brass pig, if you can tell me the name of the thing. That was a big, tall tube, and when you lit it, it had a, it had a stand. It sat up, looked like a big firecracker. It had red, white, and blue. You'd light it, and you'd run. You'd stand back, and it would just sit there. That's the great moment. It would just sit there. It looks so beautiful. You know, the sun is shining on it, red, white, and blue. And it's making a slight, just a little, and then once in a while, it would be going, and it would stop. And the entire neighborhood would hang on the edge. <laughs> and then one poor nutty volunteer, I'm going to go and check. It's out! <laughs> It'd stand back. And then it would hang there again. It would make a little sputter. And then it would start to really go. And there would then occur the first stage. It would go... Chunk. Yeah, that's all. It would go chunk like that. And the top would go and it would sit there. And it would be a tiny thing go high up, 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 Everybody's waiting. The one thing they're afraid of is that it's going to go up, 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 up. They didn't always work, you know. And it gets up at the top and it goes. And everybody staggers back. Oh boy, it was great. Got another one. You remember that? What was the name of that thing? No, salute. Come on, what kind of a neighborhood? What? Roman candle. Oh, Roman candle. What a bunch of illiterates. The Roman candle was a device that was held in the hand thusly with a long tube, red, white, blue, red, white, blue, red, white, blue, and you'd hold it like that, choom, shoo, little ball, choom, shoo, like that. There was a great form in shooting off a Roman candle. You'd spin it three times, count twice, choom. That's a Roman candle. What was the thing that went off up in the air? Torpedo. Ah, oh, come on. Greasy kid. Torpedo. A torpedo was a thing you threw against the wall and got the rocks in your eyes. Remember that? They go, pow! You'd have a handful of these things. <laughs> what an insane world it was, really. And, and of course, they, there was no restriction on these things. That you could get whatever you paid for. And every year, my father would lay in about ten five-dollar bombs. That was the guy that was really going to show a chick what he was made of. 
And they were big, great, big red, white, and blue things that came on a big green thing, and you got this thing, and you set it down, and she'd go off. Well, every day, this is the way it would work. I would give the guy his big bag, you know, $10, $15 worth of bombs, torpedoes. You don't remember the name of that bomb? The one that went up? Cracker Jack. Always trouble with women. Cracker Jack. It had a great name, and I'll tell you, the name was, it was a nationwide name, and it was inspired by Al Capone. Yeah, that's right. It was inspired by Al Capone, and that name, and it was not meant derogatory or anything. It was just, it was, it was because this thing really went off. It didn't kid around. You remember the name of it? The last word was bomb. That's right. What was it? That's right. That's what they called him. And, and they'd come up, they'd buy these things. And I remember one of the greatest incidents I ever saw in the, in the fireworks world that occurred because of one of these bombs. And I'll tell you what they called them, and don't anybody in Jersey think that I'm being derogatory to any race or any group of people. They were just called generically Dago bombs. And every week, about ten guys would come up and invest heavily. <laughs> They would come up and buy these things, see? And, of course, there were instructions on the bottom. It says, never shoot this thing off unless it's on a solid foundation. Well, you know, the big butter and egg men, they don't read instructions. They just tear the thing off and hold it, you know. <laughs> I'll tell you, a lot of guys lost a lot of weight like that, you know. <laughs> Boom, and the arm is back in Cleveland, you know. Well, I remember one day, this is exactly what happened. I sell a guy a bag of this stuff, and in the car is sitting the blonde cutie, and she's looking out, hi, little boy, and they wave, and all stuff. I say, hi. And the Willie's Night pulls out. It starts down the road with about 6,000 cars in, you know, the big traffic thing on a Sunday afternoon, and I can't believe it. This guy's hand is sticking out of the window. He's got a three-dollar-and-a-half triple-stage Dago bomb, and it's lit. He's going to show how the Roman candle works. <laughs> oh, and I says, hey, Dad, watch. And we see it. Down, and sure enough, this thing goes. And you see this thing bounce across the, the lawn of a house, up on the front steps. Boom! And the screen door flies out. And the other one goes through the other side of the car. Sixteen people immediately drove in and says, give me one of them. <laughs> As I mentioned on the open, if you've gotten this podcast via thewallbreakers.com or some other web means and would like to subscribe, you can do so on iTunes by searching for Breaking Walls, and you can do so on SoundCloud at The Wallbreakers. And hey, if you've gotten this far and you're at the end here and uh, are still listening, thank you, and maybe leave a rating and review on iTunes. I'd appreciate that a lot. It would help the iTunes algorithm, and it would help more people discover Breaking Walls. By the way, The Wallbreakers Unity t-shirt line is available at thewallbreakers.com slash shop or jamesthewallbreaker.com slash shop. Many of today's music credits are thanks to the wonderful piano compositions of Jacqueline Schwab and the films of Ken Burns. They are as follows. The Star-Spangled Banner, Flag of Columbia, Hurrah for Our National Game, and The Battle Cry for Freedom. Yankee Doodle Dandy was recorded by the old Beth Page Brass Band. Our intro music is Cesar Frank's Symphony in D Minor Part 3, the finale, 
Our outro music will be Branford Marsalis's saxophone composition of the Star Spangled Banner, overlain with fireworks. The next time you will hear my voice and my Brooklyn accent will be Breaking Walls episode number 61. That'll drop July 15th. It'll be an on-the-scene report from Governor's Island. I uh, went there recently to a participatory art project called Writing on It All, in which people were invited in sessions led by artists and writers to write on interior spaces and surfaces in an out-of-use house on Governor's Island. This was led by poets, street artists, activists, choreographers, domestic workers, and professional writers and other artists dealing with diverse topics, uh, using all kinds of materials, really, including music, projection, charcoal, chalk, pencil, and paint. Everything counted as writing. I'm very excited to bring this to you. I think it fits the independence and revolution theme quite well. In the meantime, if there's anything that I can do for you, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. My email is james at thewallbreakers.com. Thank you so much, by the way, for tuning into Breaking Walls. I hope that this episode sparks discussion about America today and America tomorrow. Happy Independence Day. Live the 4th. My name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode number 60. And until next time, I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. This is WBBN, the Wallbreakers Broadcasting Network. Thank you, and good afternoon.